Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm Shane Moss. Today, I'm talking with Melanie Martin, and uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, favorite topic on the show, and we haven't talked about it in a minute, childhood development stuff, uh, something that's super interesting to me, even though I'm not a parent, never planned to be a parent, and I still just cannot get enough of this subject matter, and I know listeners like it as well, so you're in for a treat. Hello, Melanie. How are you? Hi. I'm good. Thanks. I, uh, I, I, I wanted to... Uh, I'm a little flustered. I I screwed up our time. I'm running late. And then for some reason, I keep on calling you by the wrong name, which my listeners are used to, by the way. I do it with every guest, so don't take it personally. But your name is truly Melanie and not whatever else I was <laughs> saying before in the five times that we re Millennial? I think millennial. Did I say millennial? That would be a great, <laughs> a great name for somebody. I'm, I'm proudly Gen X. Definitely not millennial. So. Uh, tell, uh, tell the audience uh, a bit about yourself and your background. Yeah. So I am an anthropologist, uh, more specifically in the field of what we call biological anthropology. Uh, I am currently an assistant professor at the University of Washington, Seattle, so living in Seattle, Washington, I um, I did my PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, and my PhD work was I um, worked with an indigenous population in the Bolivian Amazon, uh, the Chimane, and I worked with mothers and infants studying. Uh, how they fed their infants, how they made, how they decided to change feeding at different stages of infant development and how that affected the infant's health and um, mothers when they started resuming ovulation. Um, and I have since been working with a population in the, uh, an indigenous population as well in northern Argentina, the Com. Uh, again, on, on topics broadly related to growth and development, feeding, uh, as well as birth practices, um, but have not since COVID been, uh, been in the field. Uh, I am also a mother myself. I've got an eight-year-old and a, a four-year-old. And um, so like many parents, I'm, I'm just grappling even more so with work-life balance and, and COVID and uh, all the ways that we're impacted by that. I yeah. currently have a, a quarantine four-year-old and this is my little yeah. break of time. <laughs> well, thank you for finding some time. What, what have you been working on since COVID? So um, doing, you know, started up just kind of working with data that we had previously collected, like scores of old uh, old data and doing secondary analysis. Um, I've also been involved with a group. We, we mobilized pretty quickly early on in the endemic when it wasn't known if the virus could be transmitted through breast milk, through breast 
for breast milk specifically. Uh, so working with other, with collaborators at Washington State University, University of Idaho and Tulane University, uh, we began to recruit mothers who, so it was earlier, earlier variants of the virus, the first variant, um, who had oh, been Oh, fond infected. memories. Yes, <laughs> such, such different times. Um, who had been infected and were breastfeeding to provide breast milk samples um, and also blood samples of themselves and their infants so we could look for evidence of the virus in milk, also antibodies in milk, and then antibody responses in the infants. Um, so that has kept me busy these last couple of years. Interesting. Do you have any findings about that you'd like to share? Yeah. So um, we've we've had one paper come out uh, recently, just this month, actually. And we observed in our study participants what has fortunately also been um, replicated in other observational studies, that there there is very little evidence of the virus transmitted in breast milk. There were some studies early on that were showing it. And um, what we actually found in our study is that we found some cases in which, because we had asked mothers to swab their breasts um, before taking the breast milk sample. So we had them swab the breast before and then after cleaning it. Um, and we did find some moms that had, we found some RNA on those skin swabs before cleaning, but not after. So one thing we think is where there have been some isolated reports of viral RNA in breast milk, it's probably related to contamination. It's not in the milk itself. Um, and other studies that, that did also isolate RNA, um, it, you know, viral RNA in milk have found that the RNA doesn't replicate. So it's just like fragments of the virus. Um, and then we have also observed, as other studies have, that mothers who are infected then have um, a really robust uh, antibody antibodies in their milk that persist. And we measured mother, or we had mothers providing samples that we measured for two months out post-infection. Um, so breast milk, not risky for transmitting the virus, probably beneficial in terms of providing antibodies interesting and what what does providing antibodies what does that mean in terms of long-term health does that mean it does i know with uh with other diseases some very early exposure early on can uh help train immune systems in individuals is that is that the hope is that that some of that is happening naturally yeah so there's because it's getting delivered through milk and it's going into the GI tract, right? It's really providing passive immunity as a type of barrier function. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's uh, able to bind virus in the GI tract and is probably pretty transient. There is maybe, um, you know, I'm not a total expert on this, but there. There is maybe some, right, there's some thought that maybe in saliva, like actually when it's in the, when milk is in the mouth, that could be more of an important entraining mm. mechanism there. Um, but it wouldn't be, you know, as far as I know, there's not a mechanism that once antibodies are in the gut, that they're, um, you know, crossing the gut barrier in any way, getting into circulation and training the immune system in, in that way. Um, there has, there was one study that looked at infant salivary IgA for infants that were born to mothers 
who had been infected. So, you know, they were infected. Uh, the moms were infected just before birth or in the hospital and with COVID, I'm talking about COVID specifically. And um, they, so I think only one of those infants uh, then tested for COVID uh, via a PCR test in the neonatal period. And then two months out, though, the breastfeeding infants, they had detectable SARS-CoV-2 specific IgA in their saliva, mm. whereas uh, the, there were some formula-fed infants in that group uh, did not. And so that was the researcher's suggestion there, that there had been some stimulation through breast milk uh, of IgA, um, but that it was likely specific to salivary IgA. Hmm. That's so interesting. It's a, it's amazing what a what an incredible filtration system breasts are. I I just I can't believe it. I've I've heard of this um kind of talked about by by past guests and uh and it's it's uh it's just incredible that um we we evolved such uh so, uh, that even even in the face of novel pathogens and things that we didn't evolve with and for that breasts can still filter out uh you know modern threats that um potentially our ancestors I don't, i'm not saying this as clearly as i i would like to um anyway what what's the <laughs> uh, what what's the uh take that What's your take on breastfeeding in terms of the duration, in terms of your studies that you've mm -hmm. observed in the past? Um, because it, I, it seems to me that our ancestors usually breastfed for like up to three years with a with a child. And so I tend to be like, yes, that's the you can't beat a mother's breast milk. You should breastfeed for three years. I'm not a mom. That's super easy for me to say, like, hey, moms, go out there and breastfeed your children. What is your research with hunter gatherer uh, communities found um, in terms of what works well? Yeah, so. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're humans, we're mammals and like lactation is the defining, right? That is the def defining trait of all mammals. So certainly ancestrally, uh, all humans would have, would have breastfed and all human offspring would have been breastfed for some time. Um, my work, uh, is not with hunter gatherers, but I, you know, work with, the two populations that I've worked with, one is a subsistence scale population. So they do provide most of their own food and sustenance through some hunting and fishing, but also just mostly local uh, horticulture, mm. small scale agriculture. And the other is a peri-urban population, but their, their breastfeeding practices are m what we pretty much envision ancestral practices to be. And that is, you know, everybody is breastfeeding. Um, they're breastfed from birth and they're breastfed what we call on demand in that infants are really rarely separated from their mothers. They're carried around all the time. In the Chimane, they carry around in slings all the time. Um, and very different from kind of styles of breastfeeding in the U.S. where, in fact, women are 
told by, by nurses, and if you look up online, like how often should I be nursing, they'll be told, oh, for, you know, 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes on each breast, like every hour, or every two hours or something. Um, they're nursing in short bursts for like maybe a minute, you know, a couple times an hour. They're just kind of constantly nursing. They also sleep with their moms throughout the night. So they're nursing 24 hours. Um, and then they'll be slowly given different liquids and solids, uh, and they'll continue nursing for, I mean, with the populations I work with, you know, uh, two, two to two and a half years on average, some a little bit longer, some shorter. Hmm. We know from archaeological evidence, right, because you can look at uh, stable isotopes in bones and tell when a child was still nursing or not, or when they were, and then when they were completely weaned. Um, that, yeah, around three years is pretty average. Um, certainly when we look at populations in which everybody breastfeeds, there's, there's a lot more variation in terms of like the total, you know, weaning ages where you have some kids who, who nurse for long periods of time up to maybe four or five, six years. Um, but on, on average, it's closer to, to two or three. And the big predictor of when, kids are weaned in those type of environments is when the mother gets pregnant again, for the most case, like there, there's not so much tandem feeding, um, you know, certainly in the populations that I work with and what I know of the ethnographic record, um, that it becomes pretty taboo to nurse a child when there's a new offspring on the way. And there's, there's, could be specific taboos around that. So, hmm. um, so with the Chimani, for example, mothers will say when they know that they're pregnant, if they were nursing, they'll start weaning. And, what um, and so you can end up with like, actually, usually where you see that there are kids who are nursing up into their fourth or fifth year, they're usually to older moms who are like at the end of their, uh, they're at the end of their baby making years and they just aren't getting pregnant again. So they can continue to nurse. I see. So what about the, uh, the idea of nursing itself, um, kind of signaling to shut down some of the, um, ovulatory processes? Yeah. So that's called lactational amenorrhea and, um, it's what a, lactational, lactational amenorrhea. Okay. Yes. So it's something, um, the, the ener it's hormonal and also the energetic cost of nursing will suppress ovulation. So, um, what we see typically in the U S right. Or in, in, you know, populations like the U S so among mothers who are exclusively breastfeeding, um, they will not be ovulating, not be menstruating on average for about six months. In populations like the population I work with, the Chimani, it's more, it's closer to 14 months. Um, and that has been documented in other kind of subsistence scale populations and populations where they're really nursing on demand. And it's in part because of the frequency of breastfeeding. They're really, you know, it's that constant um, up, you know, up regulation of lactation. And also, though, that it's their, the, what we call the relative metabolic load of nursing. So how much nursing, how much producing milk is 
costing you in terms of calories. So if you are a mother that is uh, nursing all the time and also out walking around, foraging, being very active, right? That's a bigger metabolic cost on you compared to, you know, someone like me that even if I am trying to stay active and nursing all the time, like I can just go to Starbucks and drink a big, you know, grande latte with whipped cream. And I have just just offset all of that calorie loss in, a, right. in an instant. So we don't, we see that moms in the U.S. have shorter durations of lactational amenorrhea, even if they're pretty intensively nursing, because it's not so metabolically demanding on them. Hmm. Do you have, this doesn't sound like it's necessarily your uh, research specifically, but I'm, I'm sure you, you have thoughts on it. What about formula? I, I, I'm someone that uh, that that you know I'm I'm a big believer in what science is capable of and and could happen eventually. And at the same time, it just seems like things uh, like whipping up some baby formula meant to uh, replicate the lactation process that's been shaped over such a long evolutionary time that's adapting to various pathogen threats and uh, delivering antibodies and all these really, really intricate, specific, context-dependent things. Um, it, it, it seems like formula just wouldn't stack up to that process. I And I, I try to catch myself from falling into a kind of naturalistic fallacy or whatever but do you do you have thoughts on the uh formula versus um natural milk well for yeah for the reason that you know lactation in mammals has evolved over 270 million years mm -hmm. um and in our own hominid lineage for a couple million years right there's never going to be a perfect replacement in terms of uh nutritional composition other bioactives, um, any type of hormonal signaling, anything like that. They're, the formula is not human milk. But what I view formula as uh, is I classify formula in you know in my research in my it's it is a it is something that it can be added in addition to breast milk. Right? It's a it's a non maternal milk substance. And humans are pretty unique compared to other primates in that we um, have a lot more flexible feeding in how we feed our infants. It's really a defining feature of human evolution that human infants relative to other great apes wean earlier, meaning they're, they're completely off of milk, but they're still dependent on their mothers and other caregivers like fathers, grandmothers, other kin for feeding. Mm. Whereas primates, all other mammals, once they wean, they're out independently foraging. They have an infant stage and then a juvenile stage. And what marks that is full weaning. Like, mm. So not to say that there's not a process in which they're learning to forage during that, but by the time they are they're done, they are completely in charge of their own feeding, which mm. is not the case. And that, in part, you know, what enabled that kind of flexible evolution in humans was one that we are able to process foods 
uh, and get a really like high quality processed foods because of tools, because of hunting, um, you know, all these ways. So we're able to give infants and young children high quality foods that feeds their brain growth and, and development um, and, you know, offset the loss of, of milk. Mm. Um, so what I, I mean, I have argued that really that that type of mixed feeding is really what defines us. Interesting. And so in a modern context, you know, formula can be part of that. The the issue maybe for how it works with breastfeeding today, because we don't live in an environment in which it's really conducive to carting your kid around and nursing them on demand all the time. Um, is that at some point formula feeding in a bottle can offset how can offset so much how an, an infant is going to be nursing that milk production would start to slow down and it comes to substitute milk. But I think it's all really context dependent. You know, are you giving an infant a bottle of formula here and there um, because you know, you need to, to do other things and we have other caretakers and, and they can take care of the baby for a while. Um, or is formula really being used as a substitute for breast milk early on, you know, to the point that weaning would happen much, much earlier than we are likely biologically evolved for. Mm. Um, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with, with formula in terms of uh, things that you could give to infants, it is actually, you know, it's it's going to be better than giving them like almond milk or something because it has all these added vitamins and has, has been composed to best mimic uh, the composition of human milk. Mm. Um, so in terms of substituting is the best thing we have, but you can also just look at it as there's all kinds of ways that we would have been feeding infants from pretty early on too, from, from like three months on, we would have started in what we see in many populations. They are starting to give infants other things like liquids and traditional porridges and, and all kinds of things that in one are on one hand, they're even just stimulating all kinds of other physiological aspects of how infants begin to process foods and digest foods. Um, it's stimulating, you know, maturation of the GI tract and the gut microbiota and, and all these things. Um, hmm. So it's it can be on that spectrum as well, um, not just formula versus breast milk. That's interesting. So, so baby food has, has been around, um, uh, humans for a very, very long time before yeah. it started being in the little Gerber jars or whatever. Yes. Um, interesting. So what, what does that, what does that generally look like in the people that you study? You said porridges. Yeah. And things? So, well, for the Chimani, what they, one of the most common things they give, um, it, as a supplement, like if moms are reporting problems nursing, if they report that they are not, they're not producing as much milk as they, they think they should be, um, they will give their babies what's called chicha, which is uh, made mostly from, from yuca, from manioc, like boiled down yuca. And then, it, you know, it's boiled, it's made, mixed with water. You can get different consistencies. So it's more like mashed potato, more like broth. Um, and you can also let it uh, ferment and become alcoholic. That's not usually what they're giving to the, the babies. Mm -hmm. 
And interestingly with the Chimane, uh, so some type of chicha is very common throughout South America. There's, you know, different variations. It's like corn-based or manioc-based. Um, and it is tradition, traditional in many populations that um, you chew it up. You, you know, you, like you chew up the manioc or you chew up the corn as part of the processing. I, I don't know exactly why. I imagine because it's like breaking down the, you know, your, the, um, what do you call it? The enzymes to break down starches probably helps. Um, but like in higher altitude populations, they will do that as part of the teaching making process, but then boil it. And the chimani don't. So they, and it's only women who can do it. And so you, you know, you take some manioc, some boiled manioc, you put it in your mouth and you kind of let it sit there and shoot up and then you spit it out and you do this over and over. You like have this big pot of manioc and then that <laughs> sits there. Um, and the longer it sits there, it'll get more alcoholic, but yeah. otherwise you just take it and then you start, you strain it, you mix it with water and that's, um, what you call sweet chicha. And that's what's typically given to infants. Um, and then what the Chimani eat is also like very, they eat a lot of stews. Um, so they'll, they'll give those to infants. And, um, I've actually studied pre-mastication in the Chimani, uh, cause I just got really interested in the topic. I'm interested in infant microbial development. And so we were really curious if that is having an effect on infants microbial development, because presumably they're getting, you know, more inoculated with all of the microbes through chicha and anything that the moms pre-masticate. Um, and mm. it, it is not what I thought, like when I actually sat down and started interviewing moms and observing it, um, I was thinking of pre-mastication as like, well, this must've been what moms do did, you know, before we had tools, like you were chewing it up, like really processing the food and then giving that to babies. And that might have been part of our evolutionary history, but what Chimani moms are mostly doing is they'll take like a spoonful of food and they'll just kind of put it in their mouth and they're mostly making sure it's, it doesn't have any like grisly meat particles or bones. Cause they'll have fish stews that, you know, you just throw a whole fish in um, and they're making sure it's not too hot. So they're really making sure it's safe for mm. their infants to eat more so than they are uh, like processing it. Um, but it, you know, I've had, I had moms like do it and spit in a cup and you can see that it is definitely like the end product of that little five minute thing is more watery. Um, and it, there's definitely bacterial transfer, but it doesn't seem like it has any lasting effect, at least that we could tell in our research on infant, um, salivary microbiomes and that, Infant salivary microbiomes are totally different from adult salivary microbiomes. And one infant doesn't necessarily have hit that baby's salivary microbiome is not going to be more like their mothers than any other adults, even though their mothers are, you know, they're getting this kind of really? exposure. Yeah. And it's probably, I mean, what we think is that uh, there's just so many other things that are affecting your microbiome when you're a baby. Like you don't have teeth. <laughs> Um, you know, there's just, there's all sorts of development that hasn't happened. So it's just a completely different ecosystem and it's still very transitory. So even if you're getting fed, um, it's a, it's a transitory thing. And then if that bacteria has really nothing to stick to, it's just gonna go through. 
Hmm. Oh, that's in. I wouldn't have guessed that. Um. So, just to make sure that I'm understanding what you said. So, so some of those what what you would expect is some of the early exposure that's coming specifically from one individual mother is not exactly transferring um, as kind of as specifically to the to the child. Well, what we were able to test and observe what we would look, what we would have expected and what we were looking for is that infants should be more similar to their moms than another mom. Right. So like my if I'm a baby, Mm -hmm. my salivary microbiome should be should have a composition that looks more like my mother's than any other random woman. And we didn't see that. That's that's weird. That's interesting. Huh. Um, okay. And, and, and you're saying a possible explanation for that is that some of those processes just aren't happening at that stage of development, or there's just so many other factors in the environment that are influencing? Uh, it, I think part of it is just that it's too transitory, like the I exposure see. that you get. And so there, there have been studies in adults, too, where they look at, you know, the salivary microbial composition before and after kissing or like between couples. You would presume that couples would be more alike than random people. And they don't see that either. So that's hmm. one suggestion. It's just too transitory. You swap spit for a minute and then, you know, like it, it just washes through. OK, um, you don't become like the Highlander or something yeah. and get all the powers from anyone yeah. that you kiss. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then only the, other... the only the, it's all downside. That's it. You just get you maybe get sick from someone. You don't get their immunity. Right. <laughs> right. That's a raw deal, <laughs> huh? That's really interesting. It, it seems that seems a little counterintuitive, right? Like it's not what you would expect to to find necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, the issue is that what really shapes our, our microbiomes are, are, you know, there's just, there's constant exposures like diseases and food. Um, So when you look, you can look at say a household and there's maybe more, you know, there might be more in common among household members because of just a shared environment, but that's because of like constant everyday exposures. Mm-hmm. Like my, we're eating all the same things. We're exposed to the same air. We have the same water, right? Not necessarily that I'm around my kids and hugging and kissing them all the time. Hmm. Do you, you know, do you think some of the immune system, I don't know enough about how the immune system works, but, but do you think it's some of it is when you talk about the transitory nature of things? So I, am terrible at names just the worst you've already experienced this uh it it takes me everyone thinks they're bad at remembering names and and everyone remembers faces better of course but uh I, i i usually i meet so many people or at least in my old life of touring as a comedian, meet so many people that it's like, am I going to actually see this person ever again in my life? And, mm-hmm. you know, it would kind of take a few interactions before my brain would be like, okay, this is going to be a reoccurring thing. And th- this is now memory that's kind of worth storing because it's been pinged enough times or, or you 
take to learning some new concept and you don't quite get it the first time and and your retention increases on that second and third time that you learn the same thing kind of phrased in a new way in a different textbook or what have you. Do you think that the immune system is sort of uh, learning in in some situations in a similar way? Meaning, Me- meaning like it, it, meaning it's exposed to all sorts of things, figuring out what to build defenses for it, it's building uh, defenses for future um, environmental threats and one of the criteria that it's using is like how often is this has this threat popped up in the environment well there is um so there is an idea that part of so not it's it's outdated to say that the immune system is self versus non-self but how the immune system recognizes what is something potentially harmful or not can be entrained through more regular exposure early on. Not so much what, how we learn to recognize pathogens, but what, at least what the immune system recognizes as uh, sort of everyday things you're going to encounter. But not in, say, like, I don't think it's like a predictive way, but more so that it's costly for your immune system to mount like this big defense, right? right. And so... If your body, if your immune system is saying, well, okay, I'm going to run into these bacteria all the time, these parasites all the time, I I essentially learn to live with them. And that's something that different parasites can can co-opt to their own benefit as well. Like a lot of longer lived helminths have that. So our bodies produce this, um, yeah, sort of more innocuous more regulated response to them. And there's one idea. Uh, this is the, the basically the, the basis of the, what's called the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis. Oh, right? I, I love the hygiene hypothesis. Please go into it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, one idea of why we experience so many um, autoimmune disorders and uh, inflammatory disorders and, mm-hmm. uh, allergic and atopic disorders is that our bodies didn't get this calibration early on because of instead of being exposed to um, uh, a lot of environmental microbes all the time, right, um, along with things like an infancy, like maternal milk and, um, you know, just all kinds of microbes in your food and water, uh, we're basically exposed to a bunch of plastic and <laughs> cleaning agents and stuff more than anything. Yeah. Um, that are where we've lost this ability to, for the, the body to um, regulate between what is harmful and, and what is not. And it responds with these very robust responses to things that, that aren't pathogens. Can I share the way that mm-hmm. um, I, understand the hygiene hypothesis and and then maybe you kind of clear up the i like doing this i present the way that i (laughs) think about things it's always wrong in about a zillion ways and then you get to correct me and that's how i learn so my my way of of thinking about the hygiene hypothesis is is you have uh this 
this uh, immune system that uh, and various behavioral um, cues and things that, you know, there's, there was no amount of scrubbing that our ancestors a hundred thousand years ago could do to rid their environment of various bacterial uh, threats. And so we have this immune system prepared for uh, just using an arbitrary number, say 10 threats a day through all of human uh, history, this is kind of uh, what would happen. And then suddenly something like Lysol and modern sanitation comes along. And now those threats, again, just a made up arbitrary number, go from 10 to 1 uh, a day. And there's and there's some sort of kind of a almost like a supervisorial type of mechanism being like, hey, why are we only registering one tenth of the threats that we uh, would expect to register, not knowing that we're our immune system can't see that we're living in city life now or something. Mm -hmm. And because of that, then um, kind of upregulating the uh, sensitivity of threat detection until then there's like, oh, dander, maybe that's a threat, and then sets off the immune system. And that immune response is then kind of becomes the threat in and of itself, that that allergic response is, is the more of the harm than the false alarm that set it off in the first place. Yeah, I, and I, I have to say, I don't know where the current thinking or evidence is here, but that whether, you know, do is the prototype a kind of more like inflammation is the baseline and then exposures early on start to tamp that down to a more regular regulatory response. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't have the exposure, you're just at this inflammatory baseline. Like we're, we're predisposed to blow out fires everywhere. Um, versus, or is it that um, in the absence of any exposures or in the, or not in the absence of any exposures, but with limited exposures, um, it gets set at a higher level of kind of threat detection. Mm. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there is for, for women, um, there is a lot more evidence that autoimmune disorders in women are related to the fact that women, as compared to men, on average, we do have a more pro-inflammatory baseline. Um, but that has been that's part of the trade-off that occurred over time with reproduction, and that with cons, you know, with as our um, as our reproductive biology evolved, with you know, early much earlier than happens today, pregnancy and more or less constant periods of gestation. And lactation in a lifetime, right? Those are things that are setting the immune system down, right? You have to uh, suppress the immune system to tolerate a, a fetus. When you're pregnant, so, this foreign invader inside of you, you don't want your right. immune system attacking it. Right. So the idea there, yes, is that women probably have, women have this higher pro-inflammatory baseline. And now in the absence of a pregnancy, you know, like very delayed pregnancy, very few pregnancies for many women today, right? There's no counterbalancing of the, you know, the suppressed immunity. And that is why autoimmune disorders in women are so much more common than in men. Hmm. Hmm. 
I, I, I would think that. I would think that females just generally would have a heightened uh, would have would have potentially uh, ancestrally have potentially higher costs to getting some various diseases and stuff as well. I don't know. To me, it always just feels like evolutionarily males are usually just kind of like spaghetti thrown against the wall <laughs> and like whatever sticks, I guess that, that works out. Whereas like evolution has, has taken a lot more caution with, uh, with females and, and a lot more species. And then, and, yeah. and even in terms of males, like, you know, the, the, the classic example of the peacock feather showing off, not just the ridiculous amount of weight that it can, uh, overcome um, uh, unnecessarily, but the the uh, the the uh, absence of parasitic load that is potentially advertising as well. It's it's just fascinating because you know it's a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of females in infectious disease research, I believe, right? And I I wonder if that. Mm. I, I I think it is more a higher percentage than males. And I wonder if there's like oh, I didn't know that. There's yeah. a some sort of phenotypic thing going on there because I mean you you never see you don't see a female version of of the show Jackass. You know, you don't see you don't see ladies tipping each other over in porta potties and, and, right. and stuff like that. And so so that that's that's just interesting to hear that then um Perhaps that upregulated immune defenses is then, in certain instances, leading to more allergies in in modern females when allergies. Well, it's more autoimmune disorders. Oh, more autoimmune more disorders. Autoimmune, yeah. So these more kind of inflammatory, regulated immune disorders. Do do those? Um, sorry, I like. No, go ahead. But I was just going to add. I mean. But you're you're right. I mean, t- testosterone is immunosuppressive, right? Right, and so we have different males and females in, in most species, humans too. Right, there are different mating strategies. Most of the costs of reproduction are borne by females, even in humans, in which we are distinguished by actually a, a high amount, a relatively high amount of paternal investment yeah. in offspring. Males still invest a lot more energy, both their kind of where their biological energetic trade-offs are happening and then this, the going out and doing stupid stuff in <laughs> competition, you know, for broadly. Yeah. Broadly writ. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm always a little bit skittish about taking guys' advice and situations of global pandemics because I know, I know that I, I, had a tweet in like April or May of 2020 that, uh, uh, that uh, I feel like still rings a little true to me, which is if, if you give, give, uh, give a male a situation in which biceps will not help in any way. And you'll see them flexing the hardest that they, that they <laughs> ever have. And, uh, and so, yeah, anyway, um, I don't want to get distracted from your work, just stuff that's on my mind. Um, but have you noticed in the, in the cultures that you have, uh, researched, have you noticed 
um, differences in autoimmune disorders? Uh, well, so with the, the Chimane, this is the population of the Bolivian Amazon, um, where again, they're, they're living in a very high pathogen environment. Uh, there's most villages, you know, until very recently, most of them did not have electricity. The ones that do still have very limited kind of sporadic. You can maybe put a light bulb up in your house. There's not, you know, plumbing. Everyone's getting water from the river, maybe a well. Um, but there's no, um, you know, protected water sources or clean water sources. Um, and they're growing most of their own food and uh, hunting and fishing. They build their own environments. Um, and so they they have been the the project that I worked with, the Chimani Health and Life History Project, which is co-directed by Michael Gervin and Hillary Kaplan, has been working there for, for 20 years. And they've observed in multiple dimensions, right? You just do not see a lot of chronic disease in that population in terms of um you know, coronary heart disease, very low levels of obesity and uh, other metabolic disorders, things like that. And yeah, like allergy and autoimmune disorders, they're, they're just absent mm. uh, or, you know, relatively absent as far as far as we know. Mm. Um, you just don't see those kind of diseases of modern environments there. But there, you know, there is still at the same time um, a lot of gastrointestinal respiratory respiratory illnesses infectious diseases infant mortality is very can be very high um so it's not an like an eden there's right right yeah there's know, trade-offs and then, yeah um in turn the other population that i work with the com is a completely different uh economic ecosystem there they their situation um this was a the Kom were traditionally part of a, a huge indigenous population that spanned the entire Chaco region, which is uh, a region of northern Argentina, Paraguay, Bolivia, uh, and Brazil, I believe, uh, that, you know, over the course of the last 200 years, because of colonization and very... Um, patriarchal and racist practices, they have been, you know, re reduced numbers have been wiped out Their their concentrations have, you know, they've been concentrated in certain areas. Um, and they don't have in Argentina, they don't have um, the, the numbers and the political autonomy that other indigenous populations in South America do. Um, and so they the where the population that I work with uh, in this one particular community, I mean, it was a community set up by the government with it that they built homes and electricity and provide them with with that. But there's with some basic services, but there's not a lot of economic opportunity. They're dependent on um, government welfare, and so there you see, you know, like like in many rural impoverished populations. There's very high rates of obesity and metabolic disorders, mm. um, you know, along with battling other types of infectious diseases, too, because mm. it is a more impoverished environment like tuberculosis. So they've got a lot of dual burdens of disease oh. there. What, what, what's that mean, dual burdens of disease? Dual burdens is um, it can be like the combination of uh, overnutrition and undernutrition, for example, in which you've got people don't um, 
they don't, they're not getting the micronutrients that they need from food, but they're getting all like the kind of, you know, the, over, the excess of macronutrients of fat and car and sugar. So, you know, I see. um, and it can be the dual burden of chronic disease and communicable, you know, non-communicable, communicable and communicable diseases. So where you're, whereas we like in the U S with the exception of COVID, there's very little burden of communicable infectious disease. Mm. It's all, you know, it's cardiovascular diseases and cancers and, and things like that. Mm. Um, and, you know, up until recently around the world, there had kind of always been that divide. It's like part of our epidemiological transition. You're, you're either still in the, all the burdens are infectious disease that mostly infects early life mortality uh, versus all your burdens are these non-communicable diseases that mostly affect uh, later life mortality, right? Yeah. Um, but we increasingly see in um, more economically marginalized populations in you know lower middle income countries that they're they've got both. Um, because oh my of, gosh! Yeah. Yeah. That wow. Well, that it, that's a uh, that sounds like there's a lot of lessons to be learned from populations like that. Um, both both directions, what we can learn about indigenous cultures that still have more autonomy and what we can learn from the impact of modern living at the same time. Um, I want to go, I want to stay down that train of thought just a, a little bit, but can I jump back just because I, um, I got, I love the hygiene hypothesis. I got so excited when I first learned about it. And then like everything, you know, there's a little more, uh, there's some competing hypotheses and uh, more complexity. Um, and, you know, cause uh, people would have autoimmune things be like, well, what you, what you need, to, you haven't exposed yourself to enough threats. So what you need to do is go to India and walk barefoot in the latrines and get a bunch of parasites and stuff. And that will, that will recalibrate your immune system and get rid of some of these, uh, 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 uh you know, autoimmune issues. But, uh, one of the competing before people go running off and doing the, <laughs> that, there's also a competing idea that, Maybe it's not just some lack of, of uh, you know, having sterilized everything and eliminated a lot of these threats. Maybe it's that our immune system is also just confused by the amount of, like you mentioned, plastics and things early on. So we're just throwing all of these modern things that our immune system is like how does an immune system be like plastic what the heck is that you know it didn't right. <laughs> it was never exposed to such a thing in the environment that it was built in nothing nothing even remotely like it um and and so yeah i was, I was wondering if you have any any thoughts on that because there there's a there's a common thing going on right now um that i hear that uh, obviously, there's trade-offs between actual infectious disease and autoimmune stuff that happen, and sometimes you can get it both ways. But there's this tendency, I think, now to be like, well, actually, if you go out and get yourself COVID, it's helping you. It's helping your immune system because your immune system needs 
constant training. And I think that's a dangerous thing for people to think. And at the same time, I also I've been super COVID cautious um, and really hunkered down. I'm hunkered down again. And I last year was the first allergies I've pretty much ever experienced in my life where I went from uh, before COVID, I was touring three cities a week. I was often in airplanes. I was getting like, looking back at it, it seems insane. I was getting five, six colds a year, you know, and I haven't had a single cold since, uh, since COVID started, but I've had some allergies and things start popping up. So I, I don't know. Do you have any, I know this isn't yeah. exactly your, your research, but do you just bouncing that off of you? No, I mean, it's not my area of research. I mean, I can at least say from, from my knowledge of some aspects, like if we you take autoimmune disorders in women, for example, um, it's very what, no, well known that uh, women who suffer, say, from rheumatoid arthritis and then get pregnant, their symptoms go away during pregnancy. So it's not just the plastics for things like that, right? There mm-hmm. is something about how um, our, our, our immune systems themselves are calibrated to kind of certain conditions. Um, and I think there's enough evidence for, you know, like when you look at laboratory studies where they've done fecal transplants with mice and things like that, that you can immediately manipulate the phenotype by manipulating microbial exposures. Um, so, you know, how that ex- exactly works out to developing the immune system is still, I think, an on, ongoing area of research. Um, mm. But that's not to say at the same time myself, like I'm very worried about plastics and pesticides and all these other things in the environment that especially in early life, as you're being exposed to any kind of novel food or environment, like they are present, too. So how do you know what the immune system is, is picking up on? Um, you know, is it, is it the peanuts or like, but I mean, definitely peanuts have different antigen properties, but like, you know, is it, is it microplastics in our food along with whatever, you know, I I don't know. Hmm. All right. That's a point for the hygiene hypothesis in, in my mind. Um, I, I think, I don't know. I think it's something that it's, uh, really interesting to think about. I think that there is something going on with it. Um, I'm going to bounce around one more time before I get back to mm-hmm. the main point of your research. Um, just because you mentioned the fermenting and the alcohol. I, I, I had heard about in the past um, the idea of potentially alcohol having evolved. <laughs> so you, you have this porridge and then it, it sits around and they reuse it sometimes and rehydrate it and it, and it leads to fermenting over time. That seems like a, the the idea of chewing up food to turn into baby foods to deliver to your baby, that feels very intuitive to me. I can get how our ancestors stumbled on that. But going and picking up a old bowl of, of porridge and then making the discovery, oh, you can get a buzz off of this now sour fermented stuff like what what was going on there do you think just desperate you ever find yourself thinking about that 
Uh, I mean, no, obviously, this no, is wild, wild <laughs> speculation. This isn't something that you, you, you could mean, study. There's, but. there's observations in the wild of like of animals just eating, you know, Fruits fermented fruit that's yeah, fallen. Yeah. So I think it's a pretty common happy accident that can occur. <laughs> and then, you know, humans were pretty quickly able to be like, you know, we could just do this on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you just yeah. leave it there for a while and do it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. Are, are they, uh, how, how much of, st- is, is that like a treat to have some, some alcohol or is it saved during uh, uh, festivities in your, uh, or is it something that, uh, you know, where there's there's a range that you would see in cities where some people are having a couple drinks every day some people are wild alcoholics others never just and never touch the stuff at all uh how how regular is that consumed again i'm sorry that i know this isn't really your specific research but you you live around these people so right right so i i mean i spent like collectively over a year of my life there and um While I was there, which was between the years 2009-2013, they it was mostly a once a week thing, Mm. you know, like where for like per family, maybe they might do it once a week. But it could if you're walking around visiting people all the time, you might you'll hear like, oh, they've got chicha, you know, (laughs) and meaning the the chicha posh. It was like alcoholic people chicha definitely when there was festivity festivities like maybe each village would have their sort of founding party once a year and everybody would go there and people would prepare for that by making a lot of strong chicha ahead of time so everybody can have that but it was yeah i think mostly kind of once a week um more not so like and even when you do there are individuals who drink more than others, but they're they're usually trying to go into town and get bottles of alcohol. And that's where when you see people who drink more than others, it's kind of related to the other alcohol that they can get. Not, mm-hmm. oh, I got to make sure I always have <laughs> strong chicha on hand. Right. Interesting. Plus, it's mostly men who are, you know, who are drinking it and are totally dependent on the women to make it. So, mm-hmm. yes, women, women have some control. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, I uh, so going back to uh, child rearing, there, there must be it, as you're kind of talking about. Um, some of these uh, uh, kind of getting hit from both directions. It seems like some of the, uh, what is it? The ones in Argentina, what's their names again? The comb. The comb. Um, so, so the comb have more of this mix of like, they're, they're more integrated with modern city mm-hmm. life. Right. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, what does their child rearing look? Is it like a hodgepodge of various kind of ancestral things with like, do they have strollers and, and stuff like that, that they use? What, what's that mix look like? Well, they're, um, so depending on the community, they, they might have kind of more traditional kind of cultural practice in place, but sort of the, the expressions of culture, 
could that I as a non-com person that can I can easily really see and observe like oh they're making a traditional basket here you know like kids aren't necessarily a part of that where I think what is still very traditional is just their um just their kind of kin structure and day-to-day life in that um you know every you're you're around your family all the time um there's not rigid divisions of you know, family time and, and work time and um, separation in that sense. There's everybody's commingling. Kids especially are really kind of left on on their own. Um, they're you know out playing in mixed age groups. They're being sort of collectively cared for. You know, once once you hit the age of three, four, you're you're like an independent person and you're off on your own. And that is how human childhood evolved. Um, with not a lot of direct oversight from adults, there is, there are schools in the community and um, relative to the Chimane, uh where there are schools in, vill- in villages too, but not every village has a school. And when vill- schooling is really, really sporadic um, and not as important, I don't want to say not as important, you know, different families place different value on it, but there's because they are so still so dependent on subsistence living, right? It's really equally important for families and kids that they're learning these other cultural practices. But the home um, education is is sort of more is more valued and recognized as a necessity. Um, unfortunately, though, compared to other, you know, the non com within the region, like they're not getting as many resources. They don't have as many avenues, you know, graduating after post-graduation to put that education to use. Um, and there's a lot of, they experience a lot of direct racism as well for, for even people who do want to do that. So there's a kind of tension there where they're, um, I think, trapped by what modern life is expecting of them and they expect of themselves. Um, but at the, and, it, and how they still live and experience, you know, like how central family is and and the idea of autonomy from an early age is. Hmm. Um, how, how much is, uh, child rearing, uh, how communal is child rearing in the, uh, in the groups that you research? I, so I think this is something that, um, I don't, I think we, we really fail to understand in our society, uh, you know, especially when we, you talk about what attachment parenting is and stuff. So, right. Um, attachment parenting came from the idea of attachment parenting came from observations of, um, I forget which group, uh, particularly it was, but from the book, the continuum concept, right. Where, uh, it was a, Brazilian indigenous group, a psychologist who is down working with them, um, from the, from observing mothers and infants. Um, and that is a very intensive relationship. Like, just like I observe with Chimani families and Kom families where infants are never separated from their mothers. There's, there's no need to be. And mothers' lives integrate that care into them. So even though they are continuing to participate in other aspects of domestic life and household labor and production, right? It's in a way that you can still do it with a, with a baby and our 
human society like kind of evolved around that with cooperative care and parental care paternal care and investment um, in terms of both who's going out and procuring food and everybody in the household, like uh, like different generations contributing within a household, different numbers of kids, um, a lot of older siblings taking care of younger siblings, things like that. Um, and so the, but the, so the, we see that I feel like Amer- many American families have embraced that idea of like intensive parenting that is true for infants, but once they're three years old, they're like off and doing their own thing completely. And, and in fact, you know, giving a lot back to, to their family, they're, they're rested with a lot of autonomy, independence, uh, and responsibility as well. Um, and we, on the other hand, have this continued idea of intensive parenting from infancy through, you know, age 25 or whatever, that parents are still providing all of this direct care and really um, demanding care to their children uh, for a very, very long period of time. Mm. And it's something that's, that's recent. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I said, I'm a Gen X person and I remember my own childhood and uh, grew up with a single mom and you know, I remember from a very early age, like mostly, you know, like riding my bike around the neighborhood and being off and just like, see mom, go to friends, things like that. It's not, it's not that far away, but something more recently in our society flipped a switch and we've lost that idea of, of childhood as being a really important time of autonomous development. And, um, you know, it's, it's safer though, when there's a lot of eyes around you and we don't have that structure mm-hmm. now. Hmm. So what, um, uh, what do you think of, if you, if you were to be kind of, um, given your own Island and not through, not through like making, yeah, uh, you know, not through your tyrannical rule of law, but just guiding people. You you have a new island full of people, and you want to take some of the uh, best qualities of modern living and our ancestral past and and uh, various traditions and combining them. Uh, what would you do? Because there's there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of uh, our our ancestors didn't need to worry about some of the problems that come along with sedentary lifestyle that uh, impact um, many today. Um, we don't need to worry about infant mortality and in anywhere near the the way there's uh, some amazing modern, med- I mean, you can get a robotic arm if you lose an arm. Right. That's certainly something that our ancestors didn't have the opportunity for. What kind of, uh, uh, what do you think that each culture could learn from one another? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about this all the time because I, I had started researching, right. Uh, breastfeeding and infant growth and development long before I had any intention of, of being a mother. And it was mostly because I was just interested in how like the environment gets distilled into a person and, you know, and that point of how lactation reflects a mother's environment, I found really fascinating. Um, and then, you know, I, I got pregnant 
like, like my husband was in the field with me and I, uh, while I was doing my dissertation and so was pregnant, like talking to moms who have, um, just a very different experience of motherhood than I, than any U S mother is ever going to have and uh, very different experiences of birth and, and nursing. And so like that being around them, then instantly sort of influenced how I, my ideals of how I thought I could parent and would want to parent. And, uh, you know, and then I left Bolivia and immediately I'm back in the U.S. faced with the actual constraints of what our <laughs> environment is and how impossible it is to do some, some things, even though, you know, I intellectually have my understanding of, you know, what I think we evolved to do and is, you know, for probably uh, better for our emotional and psychological health and development overall. Um, you know, and I, I'm just constantly confronting it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there's, there's not, they don't easily translate. You can't easily adopt the practices of one in a, of one culture in a completely mm -hmm. different culture when you, you know, it's not easy to, you know, I mentioned it's not easy to nurse on demand when you don't have the freedom to do so. And when you have all of these other pressures that, that would take you away from, from a baby, even if you commit yourself to, to fully doing that. Um, I would say that, uh, cause I, you know, just recently done some work, um, where we were looking at with from coal mothers that we had previously worked with looking at their breastfeeding outcomes and had interviewed moms about how they, you know, they also kind of struggled with breastfeeding early on. Um, and it just became really apparent to me through talking to them and in that research, just how important for, for women, just the time and freedom is when after you give birth to just the expectation is that you're just resting and not doing anything and other people are there to help you. And we, we don't have that at all. Uh, even among family, you know, families that are fortunate enough to say, get, you know, if their mother's working and has maternity leave, uh, if the mother isn't working, she probably may not live in an environment that she's got her family around her. Um, and you're just kind of expected to, to get up and go. We have this completely flipped perspective of what pregnancy, how, what vulnerable vulnerability is, or, you know, what healing is and recovery is for pregnancy and postpartum, mm -hmm. um, that I think normally exists, uh, in many, in these populations that I'm working with and throughout most of our ancestral history and that, um, women were doing most things, you know, up until they give birth, they're not a protected class while they're pregnant, but as soon as they are, as they do give birth, you know, they're spending weeks, uh, and months just resting, taking care of their baby, like getting help breastfeeding, uh, you know, they're just, they're, they're recovering and they're providing for their infants like mm. pretty intensively in that moment. And we have completely flipped that where pregnant women are, uh, this, Walk it off. Fragile, <laughs> very fragile, fragile, special group of people. Yeah. And then as soon as you give birth, you know, if you have a cesarean section, it's not 
understood, which it is to be major surgery. And you're just expected to like get up and move on with your life and get out and then like immediately lose that baby weight and all these things. So that is I totally effed up in our society Mm. and um, we have the the means to fix it at least through policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other major thing, you know, as now as my kids get older and I think about how kids have grown, you know, how childhood evolved. I do think what I I would really import is more play and mixed age group learning and less structured childhoods. Um, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I, I recognize that, you know, for, for many parents that, and families, the idea that is, is risky and terrifying because a lot of kids are bullied, um, you know, not be, we, we have different, like, you know, my, my kids aren't, I, I'm not black. My kids aren't black. I don't have to worry about those threats for them. Like, it's not a perfect, it, it's not a perfect translation because where kids can be protected um, and learn and be free, culture is very, is, is the learning environment. Like cultures are much more stringent. So um, where you have, and I'm just trying to say, right. It's, I think it's easier to just learn from your environment uh, in a small society where culture is much more rigid. Mm. Um, so you, you can kind of leave kids to, to learn on their own because they are at every opportunity learning from other people and surrounded by other people. But it's very different than if I just say, like, tell my kids, just oh, go outside and, and learn what you will, because we have compartmentalized everything in our society. We don't have a rigid culture Right. We have a million microcosms of, of culture across our population um, and they need more kind of direct instruction. But if we could come to a happy medium where there's at least a lot more time for play and learning through play and experimentation and just their own peer interactions, um, I would I would import that. That's that's fantastic. That's a great answer. And it would actually be a perfect place to end. But I have one last question just because maybe I have uh, future scientists listening or just people that are uh, curious about what uh, what life is like as an anthropologist doing what you do. One of my favorite books is uh, Robert Sapolsky's A Primate's Memoir. Oh, yeah. That's a great book. Yeah. And uh, how... Uh, how how have you enjoyed your work as uh, uh, traveling and getting to do some of the uh, living with the people that you've talked about? Did yeah. you recommend it or? I, I do. It's not, I know it's not for everybody. It, you know, I don't, I, I mean, it's what drew me to being an anthropologist in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like I was um, just fascinated by, how other people live and that's not you know many people aren't um (laughs) and i you know i think that's an important lesson for our culture the more the more we do understand uh how other people live and that our own beliefs are very much determined by the environments that we grow up in you know should give us some more empathy and understanding for everyone Mm -hmm. um but you know, um, I love, I love being, I love, um, 
the weirdness of being in a, a foreign culture. And uh, I love finding um, moments of kind of true understanding and connection. Um, I think for me as an anthropologist, you know, it actually would, one of the most rewarding times for me as an anthropologist was after uh, I had had kids. Um, and when my youngest son was a year old and I was down in Argentina in the community, um, it was so, so, so easy to converse and interact with the mothers I was talking to because we had um, an instant bond that, that really did cross cross over everything else. And it was very different from anything that I had experienced previously. Um, it was, and I don't know, you know, other dimensions where you can so easily just sit down and talk to somebody and identify with them because of just shared experiences of being a mother. Um, you know, it's it, like I, I'm, fatherhood wouldn't necessarily do that because the experiences of fathers is so culturally different across like that is just a, a kind of fact across humans mm -hmm. um it was really that was really rewarding and um yeah i i think uh, I, don't, I don't know what what the, what advice i would give to anybody there but if you enjoy um you know certainly if you enjoy not just immersing yourself in other cultures but um really be putting yourself in a situation where you are going to be the odd person out in order to learn from them. Uh, you know, anthropology is usually not a, uh, the most popular of majors, but mm. that is, that's what we endeavor to do. We endeavor to understand what is universal across humans and then why different populations are distinct and why people within different populations are distinct. Hmm. Sounds fascinating. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me, Melanie Martin. Uh, you're a terrific guest and uh, best of luck with all of your own <laughs> child rearing. And do you, do you have plans to, uh, to go back? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm definitely uh, hoping to go back to Argentina this summer, you know, we continue to monitor the situation. I have uh, work with um, Claudia Valencia as the co-director of the program I direct and Sofia Olmedo is our field coordinator. And Sofia is Formosena, she lives in Formosa and has been giving us regular updates throughout the, you know, throughout the pandemic about what has been going on with the, the community. Um, so we we are privy to the challenges that that they've been experiencing, um, uh, su such as I I, I got to get you out of here. I know you need to go mm -hmm. in a, a minutes, yeah. but <laughs> if you can, is there is there anything that you want to say about what the, what some of those? Uh, I'm curious what they're experiencing, being such a different culture. So what has been the, the hardest for them, um, because Argentina uh, took a very proactive stance uh, against the virus early on, and there was very little community circulation early on, um, but their proactive stance in the province, you know, bordered on kind of violating rights. Um, and they have just been kind of shut out of a lot of areas of life that 
things that have happened here, like the loss of education and learning, has just really exacerbated issues that are going on in this community, especially among youth um, in relation to uh, alcohol and drug abuse and, you know, growing violence, um, you know, and, and loss of years of education. And it's challenging for the community because they, you know, children are completely autonomous. Um, and so that, that tension between there's, there's not the overarching culture that, that is kind of keeping people in the same line. And there's not a lot of strict parental oversight, um, but these outside influences that are promoting just a lot of alcohol abuse and violence and, um, you know, not going to school. So it's a, it's a hard time for the community right now with not a, a lot of answers. So certainly that I, you know, we can provide and not a lot of resources or attention given to them uh, in the province from the Argentinian government. Oh, wow. Well, I wish them well. I wish you well. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. Um, and I, I wish we could have talked for longer. <laughs> I was running late today. But thank you, listeners, for be being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll see you more next week. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.